Let's open up our Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 3. We're going to begin at verse 7. Tonight, we're going to conclude our look at the seven churches of the book of Revelation uh, and conclude Revelation chapter 3. We'll be taking a look at the church in the city of Philadelphia and the church in the city of Laodicea. Let's jump right in here. Revelation chapter 3, beginning at verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Because you've kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world, to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I come quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out, and, and he shall go out no more. And I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, of course, when we speak here in verse 7, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, we're not talking about Philadelphia, which is near the east coast of the United States. That name was named after this city, or after actually the name in the Bible, because the name Philadelphia means brotherly love. And this city was originally founded in the ancient world for a very specific purpose. It was founded to be a cultural outpost. It was a frontier town, a border town, and the intention in the founding of the city of Philippi was that it would be a city from which Greek culture went all throughout the region and civilized the barbarian peoples of that area. They wanted to bring to them the Greek language, the Greek arts, the Greek literature, the Greek culture and political system, and they wanted to do it by making the city of Philadelphia really a missionary center for Greek culture. Philadelphia was also a prosperous city, It was situated right upon one of the greatest ancient highways of the world. It was the highway that was really the conduit from the east to the west, from Europe to Asia, and Philadelphia was the gateway from one continent to another. Because they were a wealthy city, it was a beautiful city. It had many temples to many different gods there. It was prosperous, bustling. Sometimes people called it the Little Athens because of all of its great, beautiful temples and buildings. There's another characteristic about the city of Philadelphia. They were oftentimes troubled by earthquakes. It was a very seismically active region, and so they had frequent earthquakes. Matter of fact, not a hundred years before uh, this time of, of the writing of the book of Revelation, the city of Philadelphia had been almost devastated by a significant earthquake. Now, when Jesus introduces himself to the city, look how he introduces himself again in verse 7. He says, these things, says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. We get the sense from this that Jesus wants to uh, speak of himself to the Philadelphians in terms of his authority. I mean, look at it. First of all, he's holy. He's true. It's an interesting thing, that word true there. There's two ancient Greek words that you could translate true. One of them means true as opposed to false. The other one means true as opposed to fake. In other words, one of them sort of means objectively true, and the other one kind of has the idea of real or genuine. The word Jesus uses here to describe himself is the one real, genuine. I'm the real deal, is what Jesus is saying. I'm the one. I'm genuine. And then he says, he who has the key of David who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. Actually, there Jesus is quoting from a passage from Isaiah chapter 22. 
the book we went through previously on Wednesday nights before Revelation was the book of Isaiah. And that passage is still ringing in my mind. The whole passage with Eliakim and Shibna and the peg that, that God would take and put in the place and put the key on the shoulder of, of Eliakim, well, so forth and so on. We, we, we're just not going to get in and describe all of that, though. The whole point here, though, is the whole point of authority, isn't it? He has the key of David. And when he opens, then what? No one shuts. When he shuts, well, nobody opens. This is the, the sovereign Jesus. All power, all authority. Now, if Jesus were to introduce himself to you, if he were to come and, and he meets you and there's his business card and he lays it out for you, here I am, this is who I am, how would you feel? You might be a little nervous, right? It's like, no, here comes the hammer, right? I'm holy, I'm true, I'm the God of all sovereign authority. But the hammer is not going to drop on the church of Philippi. Instead, what Jesus is going to express to them is, yes, I'm the God of all power, of all authority, and I'm on your side, is what he wants to express to them. Take a look at it here in verse 8. He says, I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Jesus says the same opening phrase to each one of the seven churches. He says, I know your works. Now, some of them, it was a good thing that he knew their works. Others of them, it was a bad thing. In the case of the church at Philadelphia, they were a church whom Jesus knew their works, and it was a good thing. And he says to this church, I've set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. What does it mean that the church of Philadelphia had an open door set before them? Well, we find repeatedly in the New Testament... 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 9, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12, and Colossians chapter 4, verse 3, each one of those passages speak of an open door indicating evangelistic opportunity. And basically what God is saying to the Philadelphian church is he's saying, I've set before you evangelistic opportunity and no one can shut it. Jesus is telling them that he's opened that door and that they must go through that door in faith. I've opened it in front of you. Now again, let's remember that in its history, the city of Philadelphia had this great evangelistic calling, but they were to be evangelists of Greek culture. Let's go out and spread Greek language, Greek customs, Greek uh, political systems. Now Jesus says, you are a great missionary city. I want you to go be missionaries of my kingdom, evangelists of the kingdom of God. Spread the culture of my kingdom throughout the whole region. That's going to civilize the barbarians. That's going to make a real difference. Now, I want you to notice something here. Look at it carefully in verse 8. He says, see, I have set before you an open door. That's what Jesus wants him to do. He said, I've got the open door right in front of you. Look at it. See it. How often has it happened that God has put an open door of evangelistic opportunity right in front of our face and we don't See it. That's why we have to be told, see, look at it. A man who had been touched by Jesus once came to Charles Spurgeon and asked him, well, how, how can I win other people to Jesus Christ? So that great preacher Spurgeon, he asked him, he said, well, what are you? What, what do you do? And the guy said, well, I'm an I'm a engine operator for a, for a train engine. And Spurgeon asked him, well, is the man who shovels coal on your train a Christian? And the guy said, I don't know. Spurgeon said, well, go back and find out and start on him. See, right there, right there in the very place where he worked was a place for him to begin. An open door right in front of him. It's just Jesus saying, see, look, there it is right there. And then once God uh, has you see the open door, then we have to walk through it. God wants us to take every evangelistic opportunity that he opens up before us. Now, there are some Christians who are uniquely gifted by God to go around and, and open those doors all on their own. God makes them unique evangelists, and they're door openers in evangelism. I mean, it's just amazing to hang around them. You go around, there's closed doors all around. They can come, open the door, open the door. It's beautiful. But can I tell you something? Every one of us as Christians has the responsibility to be an open door evangelist. You may not be a great door opener or lock picker or anything you want to talk about in that regard. But when Jesus puts an open door right in front of you, you can do that, can't you? You can lead another person to Jesus Christ. And you know what? If you don't know what to say, then at least say, come to church with me and, and they'll tell you about Jesus. Just come with me and, and, and I'll tell you about Jesus. 
We don't realize how open people can be around us. You know one of the most wonderful things you can do to find out how open people are to the gospel around you? This might sound crazy to you, but actually it's a lot more effective than you think. Talk to your non-Christian friends as if they were Christians. Just, you know, if you've got a prayer need on your heart, go and tell your non-Christian, say, can you pray for me about this? Now, they'll be stunned. (laughs) If God's done something great in your life, or you you know, God really touched your heart in the Word from a a study or a Sunday, go and tell them about it. Say, oh, you won't believe, I heard the most amazing thing. Just talk to them as if they were a Christian. First of all, it'll blow their mind. But secondly, it'll show them there's something of value here. There's something I want in this. You will make them hungry for the things of God just by, well, talking to them as if they are a believer. It's a marvelous, marvelous way to walk through an open door. A lot of times you think, well, they're not a Christian. I can't say Jesus to them. Well, what do you mean? He's part of your life, right? You just talk to him just like you would anybody else. Isn't it glorious that in Jesus, we don't have to have one face at church and another face at work and another face, we can just have the same face all the time. So you talk about Jesus at church, well, talk about him at work. Talk about with other people. Believe me, you're all ready for them to be offended and scandalized and to hate you. They won't. Oh, certainly there may come up a little bit of opposition or persecution here and there, but then you just wear it as a badge of honor for Jesus' sake. That's all there is to it. So in any regard, notice here, not not only is this open door in front of them, but look at it here. He says in verse 8, See, I've set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. Well, that's the authority that Jesus has. When he opens the door, then no one can shut it. He has it open. And we can trust God with open and closed doors in our lives, right? There's a beautiful passage in the Psalms that says, A promotion doesn't come from the south or the east or the west, but it comes from the Lord. And we should believe that, right? If we commit our ways to the Lord and trust Him, He's going to bring it to pass. God isn't dependent upon the schemes or the the talent scouts of man. No, God knows what He's doing. God's headquarters are in heaven, and, and He knows when to open a door and when to leave it open and when to shut it. He'll open it and shut it as He pleases. But because Jesus has opened the door, then He gets the glory, doesn't He? He gets the credit for it. Notice here, verse 8, He says, I know your works. See, I've set before you an open door, and no one can shut it, for you have a little strength. Now, you might think this is sort of backhanded slap. You have a little strength, but actually it's a high, high compliment to the uh, Philadelphian church. Simply in this, they were weak enough to be strong in the Lord. A lot of times we think that things are a matter of great strength. It's not. It's not a matter of great strength. It's not a matter of great ability. It's a matter of great dependability, and what I mean is depending upon the Lord. Think of a man like Samson. Great strength, great ability, but he didn't depend on God very much, did he? You take a look at somebody else who just has a little bit of strength, but they faithfully use it, and they really depend on God, and God will use them in a much, much more glorious way. Friends, do you realize it? And oftentimes we don't, but we can be too strong for God to use. We can be too big or too sure of ourselves for God to really use us. And the church in Philadelphia had the poverty of spirit to know that they really needed God's strength. And they were also faithful to the Lord. Look at it again in verse 8. For you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. I mean, isn't that glorious? Think of all the great things that the Lord says about the church in Philadelphia right here in verse 8. Number one, they, they have evangelistic opportunity. Number two, they have reliance on God. That's what he means by you have a little strength. And number three, that they're faithful to Jesus. They've kept his word and they've not denied his name. Now let me say something. A lot of people would look at those features and say, well, that's not so spectacular. Evangelistic opportunity, reliance on God, faithfulness to Jesus. That should just be commonplace among churches. Well, I suppose it should, but it isn't. Let's understand that Jesus was completely pleased with this church. Jesus has nothing negative to say to the church at Philadelphia. Isn't that staggering? Nothing. Not a single word of criticism to the church at Philadelphia. You would not look at the church of Philadelphia and say that they were a spectacular church. Probably, in the eyes of man, they were not. You look at them and say, little strength. 
Well, at least they're holding on to his word, and at least they're keeping his word and, and honoring his name. Well, that's good. Jesus looked at them and said, I don't have a single word of criticism for them. Now, he does have encouragement for them, and we'll get to that in the future verses. But take a look here, verse 9 and 10. Jesus speaks about what he will do for the Christians of Philadelphia, where he says, Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet, and to know that I have loved you, because you have kept my command to persevere. I will also keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. You see, apparently the Christians in Philadelphia were persecuted by some Jewish people. And that's why he talks about the synagogue persecuting them. However, those persecuting Jews were Jews in name only. They weren't really faithful followers of God or or had no true spiritual connection to Abraham or the people of faith. Please, let's understand something here, and it it almost pains me that I would feel it necessary even to say this, and not that I say this so much for our specific group, but knowing that other people listen to this tape and that things will get out and abroad, and now you've got to think, you know, these messages go on the Internet, and anybody from all over the world can listen to this. But it's important to notice that Jesus does not speak against all Jewish people here. It would be entirely wrong to speak of all the Jewish people as a whole as if they were the synagogue of Satan or as if they were those who are Jews who say they are Jews and are not. Jesus was speaking of a specific group of Jewish people in the city of Philadelphia who persecuted the Christians during that period. And Jesus says, I'm going to vindicate you before them. He says, I will make them come and worship before your feet. Now, he doesn't mean that he'll make them worship your feet which is kind of an unappealing sort of thing, isn't it? No, what he means is they will worship right along with you. They're going to come to a recognition of who Jesus is. They're going to come to the place, look at verse 9, where they know that I have loved you. I'm going to humble them before you. And they're going to be transformed from enemies into fellow worshipers of God. They're going to worship God together, and they'll worship at your feet. They'll be so humble in their contrition before the Lord. But in verse 10, we have a promise that many, many Bible commentators and scholars, I think, have rightly recognized goes far beyond just the context of the Church of Philadelphia, but which speaks to the end times. Where Jesus says, I will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world. Jesus promises them protection from the hour of trial coming on the whole world. Most Bible scholars see this hour of trial as a prophetic uh, reference to the messianic woes, the great tribulation which shall precede Jesus' earthly kingdom. Jesus promises to keep these Christians from the hour of trial. Now, why does the hour of trial come? Look at it there in verse 10. To test those who dwell on the earth. Now, this test is directed against those who dwell on the earth. That phrase, those who dwell on the earth, is used nine times in the book of Revelation, and it speaks of those who are not saved in Jesus Christ. It speaks of the lost. Therefore, this hour of trial is coming upon believers. No, it's coming upon the lost, those who dwell on the earth. You see, Christians are different. We walk on this earth, but our dwelling place is in heaven. We've been seated in heavenly places in Jesus Christ. And so we do not dwell on the earth. Our life is hidden in Jesus. Now notice something here. He says, I'm going to keep you from the very hour of trial. And what this says to me, not only on this passage, not by any means, but certainly included in this passage, is the promise that Christians will not go through that time of great tribulation which is going to come upon the earth. If you notice what he says, he says, I'll keep you not just from the trial. What does he say in verse 10? From the hour of trial. I will deliver you from the very time of trial that comes upon the earth. You see, those who believe that Jesus will come for his church before this time of great tribulation, myself among them, note that this protection is from the very hour of trial, not just from the trial itself. And the great tribulation, as it's described in the book of Revelation, don't worry, we're going to get to it. It's a worldwide cataclysm. Jesus says, I'm going to deliver my faithful people from the very hour of that time. As a matter of fact, if you notice here, 
The, the ones tested by the hour of trial are not believers. Who are the ones tested? Those who dwell on the earth who are not citizens of heaven. And so what does Jesus want the church of Philadelphia to do? Look at verse 11. Behold, I come quickly. Hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown. Well, first, Jesus wants the church at Philadelphia to remember that he's coming quickly and that they must prepare for his coming. That expression, quickly, is really used in the ancient Greek language more as the idea of suddenly and unexpectedly, not so much immediately. I'm coming suddenly and unexpectedly, so be ready. And notice it here, hold fast what you have. The church at Philadelphia must not depart from its solid foundation. Remember from verse 8 what its foundation was? Evangelistic opportunity, reliance on God, and faithfulness to Jesus. Jesus saying, keep it up. Hold fast to those things. Those things can and must continue among the church in Philadelphia. But it will only happen as they make an effort to do it, as they hold fast what they have. Why? Look at it there at the end of verse 11. That no one may take your crown. Now, the idea in that phrasing is not that you're walking down the street and some mugger comes up and steals your crown. That's not it. The idea is that you're an athlete ready to run a race and there's a gold medal or a crown set aside for you and you don't want one of your competitors to take the crown. You run the race as hard as you can so that no one takes your crown. This is not a crown of royalty given because of royal birth. It's a crown of victory. And Jesus is encouraging his saints to finish their course with victory. It's as if he's a coach and he's saying, you played the first half great. Now go out and play the second half harder than ever. Let's go. So he finishes up here in verses 12 and 13 with the promise of reward. He says, he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. Beautiful promise. God says to the overcomers in the city of Philadelphia, I'm going to make you like a pillar in the temple of my God. You think of a pillar. What's a pillar all about? It's all about strength and stability. It's holding things up. You know what's beautiful about this? Some really precious allusions from the very ancient city of Philadelphia. Remember the frequent earthquakes that they would have? Well, a, a lot of times you'll find these ruins of ancient buildings and everything else is toppled over by a great earthquake except for what? The pillars. They're still standing. Isn't that what God says to his pillars? The world's going to shake all around you. Everything else is going to crumble and fall, but my pillars will stay standing. That's a beautiful thing. The other thing about pillars is that they hold up the building. No, the only thing that supports the pillar is the foundation. That's how it should be in the church. You should have people, they support the church. They're not looking to the church to support them. Where do they get their support? From the foundation, Jesus Christ. They say, no, I'm a pillar in the church. I'm here to support other people. I'm here to be a support for the church. And I'll have my support from the foundation, Jesus. And then if you notice too, Again, Jesus drawing on these precious illusions that would be very, very meaningful to the people in the city of Philadelphia. He says in verse 12, and he shall go out no more. Now, one of the characteristics of the city of Philadelphia was their frequent earthquakes. And every time there was an earthquake, everybody would run out of town. They'd evacuate because nobody wanted a building to fall on them. Believe me, they didn't build a code back then and you were very wary, right? So as soon as the shaking started, you ran out. And then you waited until the shaking was over, and then you very steadily went back in. Well, you know how it is in a time where you have earthquakes and a lot of aftershocks. Can you imagine how it was? Out, in, out, in, out, in. And what's the promise to them? You're going to go out no more. I'm going to make it safe. I'm going to make it stable. I'm going to give you a sense of security. You're not going to have to go out anymore. And I'm going to write on him the name of my God. Again, another beautiful illusion. We know this from archaeology. One of the things that they would do in these temples in the city of Philadelphia was they, they would go to a temple and on one of the great pillars in the temple would be inscribed names of some of the leading citizens or priests or whatever. You see, if you were a notable priest, they would inscribe your name on a pillar. And God says, no, I'm going to write on you my name. You're my pillar. I'm going to write my name on you. I'm going to inscribe my name on you. And, and everybody will know who you belong to and who you honor. 
Everybody will see that and remember it. So he says, verse 13, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You know, we all want to be the Church of Philadelphia, don't we? We all want to look and say, well, I guess that's, that's us, isn't it? <laughs> you kind of look kind of coy about it. Well, you know, I guess it's just us. And Well, there's glorious things in the city of Philadelphia. There's no doubt about it. Friends, really, are we, are we taking those open doors that the Lord sets before us? Are we really finding our strength in Jesus and not in something else? And the third thing from verse 8, are we keeping his word? Are we not denying his name? It's that faithfulness to Jesus Christ. That's what makes us like the Church of Philadelphia. Because if you think you're like the Church of Philadelphia and you're not like the Church of Philadelphia, you're probably like the church at Laodicea, verse 14. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you're neither cold nor hot. I could wish that you were cold or hot. So then, because you're lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew you or vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The city of Laodicea was a very famous city in the ancient world. It's actually mentioned a couple times in the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 2 verse 1 and Colossians chapter 4 verse 16. Laodicea was an important, wealthy city. It had a significant Jewish population. It was a city with a significant temple to the healing god Asclepios. There was a medical school there uh, in the temple associated with that uh, pagan god Asclepios. Laodicea was a very wealthy, self-reliant city. In the year 60 AD, one of those earthquakes in the region leveled the city. The city of Laodicea absolutely refused what we would call federal disaster aid. They said, we will rebuild ourselves, thank you very much. And very proudly and very competently, they rebuilt themselves. Now, could you imagine that today? Let's say an earthquake devastated a significant city. Let's say it, it, it devastated a, a city in Southern California. And that city in Southern California said to the federal government, no, thank you. We don't want your federal aid. We'll do it ourselves. And they did it. You'd stand back and say, they're sharp. They got it together. They don't need handouts. Look at these people. That was the attitude in the city of Laodicea. Now, obviously, you had to have money to do that. And the city of the Laodiceans had it. They had some excellent things that they exported and were known all over the world for. One of them was a unique kind of dark uh, blue or black wool. It was glossy and lustrous, and it made beautiful, beautiful garments, prized the world over. The other thing that it exported was an eye salve that was used to heal people of eye problems. And this was a very valued commodity coming from the temples of the healing gods in the city of Laodicea. Now, they did have a problem, though, in the city, and that was they had an extremely poor water supply. They didn't have many fresh springs within the city. So actually, they had to use an aqueduct to pipe in the nearest water. But here was the problem. The nearest good supplies of water were from hot springs. And so the water would go into the aqueduct hot. And by the time it got to the city of Laodicea, it wouldn't be hot, it wouldn't be cold, it would be lukewarm. And plus, it would have that mineral water smell, which is kind of nauseating, isn't it? But this was the best they could do. Now, the problem with that is it also made the city of Laodicea very vulnerable to attack. If a surrounding army came and laid siege against the city of Laodicea, you could cripple them in a matter of weeks, just cut off the aqueduct, right? 
They don't have enough water to get by on their own. Cut off the aqueduct, they're like putty in your hands. Therefore, the civic leaders of the city of Laodicea were always very quick to compromise with an opposing army. Why fight, right? You're just going to get beaten. You may as well compromise and get the best terms you can. That was the attitude of the city of Laodicea. How does Jesus describe himself to this city? Verse 14, And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Pretty impressive beginning there. Amen means so be it, or it is done. Jesus is saying, I'm the one who's the truth. I'm the one who's, who gets it done. I'm the, the yes. I'm the amen. And then he's the faithful and the true witness. It's going to be a contrast to the kind of people the Laodiceans are. And then he says he's the beginning of the creation of God. I really don't have time to go into this in depth, but let me just say it quickly. That this Greek word, this ancient Greek word here used for beginning, it doesn't mean first in sequential order. It has the idea of being the source or the ruler or the origin. Jesus is not saying that he was the first one created as if he were a created being. Instead, the scriptures are very clear that Jesus is not a created being. No, what he's saying is that he's preeminent. He's prominent among all created beings. That's the idea of that phrase, the beginning of the creation of God. So what does Jesus know about this church? Look at verse 15. I know your works, that you're neither cold nor hot. I could wish that you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew you or vomit you out of my mouth. Now, this picture of lukewarmness would immediately strike the Christians of Laodicea because the water they drank every day was lukewarm. Jesus said, just as the water you drink is disgustingly lukewarm, you are lukewarm spiritually. You're neither cold nor hot. And we understand the picture, right, of being spiritually lukewarm. It's not complicated. You're, you're in the middle. You're, you're not hot. You're not cold. You're trying to play the middle. You're trying to be safe. Well, I don't want to be too extreme for Jesus, but I don't want to be totally in the world either. I'll try to ride a middle ground right there. Jesus says you're lukewarm. Trying to play the middle. Not too hot, not too cold. The problem is, is that you're too hot to be cold and you're too cold to be hot. And in trying to be both things, you end up being nothing except to hear the words, I will vomit you out of my mouth. So that's the picture here of these terribly situated Christians of Laodicea. Really what they have is empty religion. There's a religious shell around things, right? People would look at them and say, whoa, my, what fine Christians. But they're not. Because it's not burning in and through them hot. I don't know if there's any soul harder to reach than the one who's had just enough of Jesus to think they have enough. The church of Laodicea exemplifies empty religion. And friends, the tax collectors and the harlots were more open to Jesus than the empty religionists, the scribes and the Pharisees. I think Satan will have us any way he can get us, but he prizes the lukewarm religionists a great, great deal. If you notice, Jesus says, and it's striking what he says here, if you notice it in verse 15 and 16, where he says, I could wish that you were cold or hot. You see, what Jesus wants to change in us as much as anything is the deceptive playing of the middle, the, the trying to please both the world and Jesus. He says, you, I could wish that you're cold or hot. You're, you're useless. I mean, hot water has its uses, right? Cold water has its uses. What, what good is lukewarm water for? If you were hot or cold, I could do something with you. But because you're neither, you're good for nothing. I'll vomit you out of my mouth. That the lukewarm Christian has enough of Jesus to satisfy a natural craving for religion, but not enough for eternal life. I mean, think about it. I would that you were either hot or cold. That the thief on the cross was cold towards Jesus, and he clearly saw his need. He woke up and said, what am I saying? I'm, uh, this man hasn't done anything. We're guilty of the crimes we committed. And his coldness led him to the place where he said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And you look at somebody else, uh, the apostle John. He was hot. He was hot in his love towards Jesus. And it was a beautiful, warm love relationship. But Judas, he was lukewarm. He, he followed Jesus enough to where everybody looked at him and said, well, he's one of the disciples. 
but he didn't give his heart over to Jesus in fullness. Wouldn't we say that deep down there's no one more miserable than the lukewarm Christian? They've got too much of the world to be happy in Jesus, but but too much of Jesus to be happy in the world. So Jesus says, "I, I could wish that you were hot or cold. We know that his deepest desire is that they would be hot. Later on, as he says, I want you to be zealous. And that word zealous actually means hot. And he says, listen, if you're not going to be hot, I'd rather you be cold. And this, this lukewarm stuff, that's, that's offensive to me. Why is lukewarmness so offensive? Well, wouldn't you think that Jesus would say, well, cold's really bad, hot's really good. You know, middle's in the right direction. No. Because what what lukewarm does is it blurs the lines. And lukewarmness, it it mocks God. You know, lukewarm prayers mock God. Have you ever thought of what an insult it is to God when we come before Him with lukewarm prayers? There it is. We come before His heavenly throne. The, The way has been paved for us by the precious blood of Jesus. But we come to it with cold hearts. With with cold attitudes. or, Or we leave our hearts behind us. You may make the gestures of prayer. You, you fold your, your hands. You bow your head. You may even get down on your knees or whatever you want to do. Yet you do not really pray. You just sort of babble on words. And you, you're degrading it. It's lukewarm Christianity. It's mocking God, really. But even worse than lukewarm prayers, lukewarm lives turn people away from Jesus. Think about what people in the world see when they look at a lukewarm Christian. They look at someone who professes to be a Christian, but they can tell by their life that Christianity isn't something to take seriously. Well, you just piddle with it. You just, you just play around with it. He's going to heaven, but he's going at a snail's pace. He says he believes that there's a hell, but he's never seen him weep over a sinner or seek to save somebody from going down into the pit. This Christian says he believes in eternal realities, but he just kind of sleeps his way through life. He professes to be a different man, a new creature in Jesus Christ, but if there's some vast new change in his life, it's hard to see it. See, my friend Charles, Charles Spurgeon said that the careless worldling is lulled to sleep by the lukewarm professor, who in this respect acts the part of the siren to the sinner, playing sweet music in his ears and even helping lure him to the rocks where he will be destroyed. This is a solemn matter, beloved. In this way, great damage is done to the cause of truth. And God's name and God's honor are compromised by inconsistent people who profess Jesus Christ. I pray you either give up your profession or be true to it. If you are really God's people, then serve him with all of your might. But if Baal be your God, then serve him. If the flesh is worth pleasing, then serve the flesh. But if God be Lord paramount, then cleave to him. It's really a time for decision, isn't it? So friends, here's the the heavy, heavy word. You know, there's a striking sermon that Spurgeon preached called an earnest warning against lukewarmness. And in that sermon, he described what the lukewarm church was like. Do I dare here to paraphrase a few passages? He said the lukewarm church, well, they have prayer meetings, but there's few present. They prefer their quiet evenings at home. When more attend the prayer meetings, they're still very dull, for they do their praying very deliberately, and they're afraid of being too excited. They're content to have all things done decently in order, but vigor and zeal are considered to be vulgar. They have schools and Bible classes and preaching rooms and all sorts of agencies, but they might as well be without them because no energy is displayed and no good comes of them. They have deacons and elders who are excellent pillars of the church, if the chief quality of pillars is to be to stand still and exhibit no motion or emotion. The pastor does not fly very far in the preaching of the everlasting gospel, and he certainly has no flame of fire in his preaching. The pastor may be a shining light of eloquence, but he certainly is not a burning light of grace, setting men's hearts on fire. Everything is done in a half-hearted, listless, dead-and-alive kind of way, as if it did not matter much whether it was done or not. Things are respectably done. The rich families are not offended, the skeptical party is conciliated, and the good people are not quite alienated. 
Things are made pleasant all around. The right things are done, but as to doing them with all of your might and soul and strength, a Laodicean church has no notion of what that means. They are not so cold as to abandon their work or to give up their meetings for prayer or to reject the gospel. And then now let me quote from him directly. If they did so, then they could be convinced of their error and brought to repentance. But on the other hand, they're neither hot for the truth, nor for conversions, nor hot for holiness, nor are they, high, nor are they fiery enough to burn the stubble of sin, nor zealous enough to make Satan angry, nor fervent enough to make a living sacrifice of themselves upon the altar of their God. They are neither hot nor cold. So what does Jesus say to these churches? Look at it here. Verse 16. I will vomit you out of my mouth. I want you to think of two senses, symbolically, of course, or spiritually, I should say, in which churches are in the mouth of Jesus. Well, churches are in the mouth of Jesus, first of all, because they proclaim his word. It's as what mouth does Jesus have on this earth other than the church who proclaims his word? Could you imagine the terror of a pastor or a church, Jesus saying, no more. You're not going to proclaim my word anymore. You've given up on it. I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. A more terrifying way to be spewed or vomited out of the mouth of Jesus is to consider that we are in the mouth of Jesus in the sense that the Bible says that he makes intercession for us day and night continually before God. How would you like Jesus to stop that? To where... You are no longer in his prayers. You are no longer in his mouth. You say, Lord, save me from being lukewarm. I want to proclaim your word. I want you to pray for me, Jesus. I don't want to be lukewarm anyway. Deliver me from this, Jesus. And so now he exposes more and more in verse 17, the heart of this lukewarm church. He says, because you say, I'm rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing and do not know that you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with eyes solved that you may see. You see the condition of heart of this church at Laodicea? They say, well, I'm rich. I've become wealthy. I have need of nothing. They lacked a sense of spiritual poverty. They looked at their spiritual condition and said, rich. They looked again and they said, wealthy. They looked a third time and they said, we have need of nothing. They're the opposite of the poor of spirit whom Jesus said were blessed in Matthew chapter 5. You see, the Laodiceans put their trust in material prosperity, in outward luxury, and in physical health, right? It was the healing center. Now think about that. Trust in material prosperity, outward luxury, and physical health. Is this Southern California or what? You see, they felt like they didn't need anything at all. They've lost their sense of need. Now how it is when a man is freezing to death and he begins to feel drowsy. And he just thinks, oh, it'd be nice to sleep. You know, I'll feel better if I sleep. I'll sleep and I'll take a nap and I'll wake up and I'll be stronger. And I can, no. It's like the drowsiness that besets a freezing man. When you lose your sense of need, it's just as fatal as that sense of drowsiness. He says, you don't know. Look at it here, verse 17. You don't know. You see, it wasn't that the church of Laodicea was not spiritually poor. They were spiritually poor. It was that they didn't know they were spiritually poor. They were simply blind to it. Jesus looked at their spiritual condition and said, wretched. He looked again and he said, miserable. A third time he looked and he said, poor. He looked again and he said, blind. And a final time Jesus looked and he saw that they were spiritually naked. There's this great city of Laodicea, famous for its wealth, famous for its self-sufficiency, famous for its clothing, famous for its eyes solved. And he looks at it here and he says, you're blind, you're naked, you're wretched, you're miserable. What a shocking contrast. There's the contrast between what they think they are and what they really are. There's the contrast between what they see 
and what Jesus sees. And there's the contrast between the wealth and the affluence of their city and their own spiritual bankruptcy. Friends, look at it there in verse 17. He says, And do not know that you are wretched. Friends, this isn't just the opinion of Jesus. Spiritually speaking, they are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. What Jesus sees in them is far more important than whatever opinion they have of themselves. Back in Revelation chapter 2, we saw a church, the church at the city of Smyrna. And they thought they were poor, but Jesus said, you're really rich. Here we have the church that thinks they're rich, but they're really poor. Friends, I'd rather be a, a rich, poor Christian than a poor, rich Christian. You might say that it all began with their spiritual blindness. If you're blind, you can't look at yourself and see that you're wretched and miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Mental darkness is worse than darkness of the eyes. I mean, if you had a choice, either to be physically blind or insane, you'd say, I'd rather be physically blind. But friends, spiritual blindness is worse than either one of them. And There they are, the Laodiceans, just typical of this natural world. And so look at what Jesus tells them to do, verse 18. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Jesus says, I can help you. You need to first understand your spiritual poverty and you need to buy things from me. You need to stop looking at yourself. You need to look to me, Jesus says. Verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me. As long as we believe that we can meet our own need for wealth, clothing, or sight, spiritually speaking, we'll never receive them from Jesus. We must seek these things from Jesus instead of relying on them ourselves. So he says, buy from me gold refined in the fire. You want true riches? Jesus says, I have true riches to give you. He says, come to me and get white garments. Now, what was the famous cloth and clothing that came from the city of Laodicea? This black garment. Beautiful, I'm sure. I mean, I bet this thing was chic. It was, man, lustrous, black wool. Beautiful, beautiful. But he says, no, I want you to have a white garment. That black garment, that's the best the world can give you. I've got something better. I want to give you this white garment and cover the shame of your nakedness. And then he says, and then I'm going to anoint your eyes with eyes of, I know that you have worldwide production and great distribution. So small over the world, Jesus says, I don't care. You're blind. You've got to come from me and get it. You've been looking for these things in the world. You can't get it. You know, we look for importance from the world. Why does that person want that, that really, really expensive, fancy car? Why? For the sake of the car itself? Not usually. It's so that when they drive around in it, people will say, man, they're important. Now, can I just clue you in on something? Jesus Christ can satisfy that need for importance in you right now. And it's free, praise the Lord. You don't even have to take out insurance policy. But we look for those things from the world. We look to the world and say, make me feel important. Make me feel worthy. Make me feel beautiful. Make me feel this. Jesus says, no, you come to me for that. I'll bestow it on you. And I'm not going to do it the way the world does it. The way they do it is a pale shadow of what I have to give you. So he says, buy from me. How do you pay for something when you buy it from Jesus? I'll just suggest something. I hope I'm not reading too much in the text. I think Jesus wants us to pay for things in the currency of our own self-sufficiency. Lord, I lay it down before you. I'm going to stop trying to get this on myself. Here, I'll put my trust in you. Here's my faith. Here's the currency. I'll trust in you. I'm not looking to myself. I'm not looking to the world anymore. I'll trust in you. So he says, hey, I'm telling you this. Why? Look at verse 19. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Isn't that beautiful? You know, I don't know if I would love the church at Laodicea. If I were Jesus, I might just be angry enough with them and say, well, you know, let's just call the whole thing off right now, you, you lukewarm people. 
He says, no. I love them. I love them. Look, I, you, you might be the lukewarmiest of all the lukewarm Christians here tonight. Yeah, you can't say the hottest of the lukewarm Christians or the, 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 how about this? You may be the most tepid of all lukewarm Christians here tonight. You know what? If you are, I've got a message for you from Jesus. He loves you. And he wants you to get it right. Is he angry with you? He wants you to get it right. There's tears rolling down his face. He wants you to get it right. He loves you. That's why he's chastening you. What, you think he hates you because you're lukewarm? He knows you're worse lukewarm than you think you are. He loves you. And he wants to draw you back. And so what does he say? Look at it, verse 19. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Turn around. Come back to me. Let's go. Let's do it. Let's, let's leave that coldness of heart behind. Let's leave the lukewarmness behind. Let's go. Let's burn hot. Let's be zealous for Jesus Christ. And then he says, verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. And there's a few things to say at this great verse, this verse that's been known as the great invitation. First of all, we understand that Jesus is knocking at the door, asking for entry to come and dine with us in the sense of sharing warm, intimate time. And it happens when we respond to his knock. But the promise is made to everybody. He says, if anyone hears my voice, right? Now, in this, we understand that first and foremost, this is directed towards his church, right? This is in the letter to one of the churches, which makes it all the more painful, right? Here's Jesus knocking for entry to his own church. But secondly, we understand that this does have application to the unbeliever as well, though it's not directly pointed at them. We can very validly picture Jesus at the door, at the heart of the sinner, and wanting to come in, wanting that deep, intimate relationship. And Jesus stands at the door on the outside, knocking to get in. You know, if the church of Philadelphia was the church of the open door, then the church at Laodicea is the church of the shut-out Jesus. He says, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, it expresses a profound mystery. Why does Jesus stand outside the door? Why does he knock? Why does he wait until somebody opens the door? Doesn't he have every right to break down the door or enter some other way of his own accord? But he doesn't. The sovereign, omnipotent Jesus has condescended to work out his eternal plan by wooing the cooperation of the human heart. He says, I'm going to draw you to myself with cords of love. I'm putting those cords in you. I'm going to knock. I'm going to be there. And I'm going to be there. And you're going to open the door. Open the door for me, Jesus says. Isn't it beautiful? And so there he is. He's not, not breaking down the door. He says, open up for me. Here's the thing. Some people think that they'll open up the door to Jesus and he doesn't even have to knock. That they'll go out and go around looking for Jesus. No, Jesus comes to you, doesn't he? Isn't that how it works? Jesus comes to us. But at the same time, as he comes to us, he asks for the response of the human heart. He says, you respond to me. That's how it works. I'm going to knock at the door of your heart and you respond. You open up the door. Repent of your pride, your self-sufficiency, your human wisdom, your cowardly neutrality. Open up the door. And there, I'll come in. I'll come in. But isn't the key to opening up the door to first hear his voice? That's what he says there, verse 20. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. And isn't that the glorious promise? It doesn't just, you know, it, you, you, the knock at the door and you open up. Well, Jesus, great to see you. God bless you. Have a great day. No, what is it? Jesus says, I want to come in. Look at verse 20. I will come in to him and dine with him. If you open the door, he will come in. Jesus won't ring the bell and run away. <laughs> he promises to come in and then dine with the believer. Look, the, the, this promise of fellowship is there. And when Jesus says dine with him, he's speaking of a specific meal. You know, we eat in all different kinds of ways. Last meal I had was a Costco hot dog eaten at my desk while I was preparing this, this evening's study. 
That was not a leisurely fellowship meal. That was just a basic consumption of food. That's not the kind of meal Jesus is speaking about. He's using a very specific wording here to describe the, a fellowship meal. This is the meal that was done at the end of the day. All the work was finished and the people sat around the table and they ate and they talked and they laughed and they had fellowship and they shared stories. And it was a great time of fellowship. That's the meal Jesus is talking about. And Jesus says, I want to do that with you. I'm knocking, won't you open the door so I can come in and we can have this. This is what Jesus wants. This is the place of fellowship with him. Everything he says to the Laodicean church up to this point must be seen in this loving desire for fellowship. That's why he wanted the Laodiceans to get right. One more thing about this verse. Did you see it here in verse 20? He says, if anyone. Now notice that Jesus gives this call to individuals. He doesn't say if any church, he says, if anyone. Charles Spurgeon said this, he says, we must not talk about setting the church right. We must pray for grace, each one for himself. For the text does not say, if the church will open the door, but if any man will hear my voice and open the door. It must be done by individuals. The church will only get right by each man getting right. That's how the church gets right. So it's each one of us in the secret place of our own hearts saying, Come, Jesus. Verse 21, To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is remarkable, my friends, because in some ways, the most glorious of all the promises to the overcomer is made to the church at Laodicea. Think about it there. He says, if you overcome indifference and compromise and lukewarmness and self-reliance, you've got a special place of reward. You can come down and sit with me and my Father on our throne. I mean, that's the picture here. Jesus has conquered and he's set down on the Father's throne. And he who conquers through Jesus sits down with Jesus on his throne. But the throne of Jesus and the throne of the Father are the same, and it's on this same throne that we get to sit. I, I mean, do you get that? We get to sit with him on his throne. You see the kid who gets to climb up in the fire truck and sit behind the same wheel. He feels great, huh? Wow, is that super. That can't compare, can it? Kid, it's a police car or, or the judge's bench or wherever you want to think. No, friends, the, the, the real place is at the throne of God. And he says, hey, overcomer, even overcomer from the church of Laodicea, look at the place I have for you. In some ways, the, the most messed up church had the promise of, of greatest sweetness to the one who overcomes and the highest glory promised unto them. Friends, the, this promise to the overcomer shows that we don't have to be Christians who are compromising and lukewarm. If we are, we can be zealous. We can repent. We can be one of Jesus' overcomers. So tonight, do you have an ear to let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches? Not many of us want to identify ourselves as the church of Laodicea. We'll say, Philadelphia! <laughs> oh, but there's more Laodicea in us than we want to admit, right? It's frightening. Lord God, do a work in our hearts, we pray. We want Jesus to, to, to speak to our hearts what the Holy Spirit says to the churches because he speaks to the churches, including us. So may God deliver us from the self-reliant, compromising lukewarmness that marked the Laodiceans. Lord God, this is our prayer tonight. Lord, we know that we have no place to pray for the person sitting next to us or behind us or the friend or, or relative we have at home. Lord, right now we pray for ourselves. And we say, Lord, forgive our lukewarm hearts. And we say, God, shake us out of them and make us burning in hot fervor for you. Lord, help us to live the Christian life and to serve you and perform Christian ministry as if it matters, because it does. And thereby, Lord, to bring you glory, to bring you honor. Father, if we're in a place tonight where we're not willing 
then we say, Lord, we're willing to be made willing. Do your great work in us. We pray this tonight, Lord, and we give it to you. Thank you, Lord, for your promise, even to weak Christians as us. Thank you for your love, even to weak Christians as us. And we know that it's the power of your majestic love that's going to make us burn hot for you, Lord. We praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.